Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. If you're watching this live on YouTube, I know I'm a little late, but uh, Tulsi Gabbard actually started doing a live stream on Locals, so I was trying to get her attention again. And like I said in the video I did with Dave, if you guys want her to get on my show, just go harass her for me. She's already agreed to do it, uh, but it's been over a year since she said she would. And I don't really know what to do other than being autistically annoying until she finally does it. So if you guys follow her on Locals or if you want to go to Twitter or whatever, just tag her, harass her, get her attention. Anyways, uh, if you're watching this live on YouTube, you can also watch it on Odyssey within a couple days if you'd prefer to not support uh, big tech platforms. And you can also listen to this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and then you can follow me on all the links in the description. Tonight, we've got an interesting show. Uh, this is the crossover a lot of you guys have probably been waiting for. We've got both of the Reed C's in the Liberty Movement on the same show together. He is Reed Cooley. How are you doing tonight, man? Man, after seeing your intro, I actually feel a little bit more pumped, dude. You have got an absolutely kick-ass intro for your show. Um, <laughs> it's one of the best I've ever seen. Uh, you know, the, the line there, Reed Coverdale, that's the guy for president. Uh, that's awesome, man. So I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah, and uh, thanks, man. appreciate that. I finally paid to have a professional intro after I uh, hit around 200 episodes. But um, yeah, you're not, your your similarities with me don't end at your name. You also had really bad internet connection last time, yeah. uh, which is something I'm known for, but we worked it out. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You're kind of the Indiana Jones of the Liberty Movement. You're the archaeologist, you know, you're not kicking Nazis and, you know, opening the Ark of the Covenant or anything like that, but you're doing a lot of cool, you've done a lot of cool stuff in the past. So just give a little bit of history as to who Reed Cooley is. Well, I mean, unlike Indiana Jones, I actually, I prefer kicking communists over kicking Nazis any day. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I like that. I mean, it's, it's not the first time I've, I've had that, uh, that comparison, but uh, you know, to your point, um, I'm a former archaeologist turned into libertarian political operative. I think you know, that's probably a good way of putting it. Uh, so um, my journey with liberty uh, began uh, whenever I was an undergraduate student uh, at Baylor University. Uh, I was a double major in, in history and anthropology, studying to become an archaeologist, uh, which was uh, which was my first uh, my first career, uh, you might say. Um, as an archaeologist, I worked on several uh, several different projects, really around the world. Uh, my first archaeological project was in Italy, uh, in a place called Barbarano Romano, which is about thirty, I think, about thirty-seven miles northwest of Rome. Uh, I worked there uh, during a 2016. Um, after that, I worked on two two other excavations uh, here in, uh, in, well, in in the state of Texas. Uh, the first one was in a place called McGregor, Texas. It was a Native American site. Uh, where we excavated thousands and thousands and thousands of different uh, lithic points, what people commonly call uh, arrowheads. Uh, that was done the following year, so 2017. This was the year after my big project in Italy. Right after that, I worked on a Spanish mission uh, from the late 18th century. Um, that was a, that was an incredibly unique site in the sense that um, you know. So so this this site uh, dated from 1762 to 1771. Uh, it was a Spanish mission uh, in Southwest Texas. And at that time, the Spanish Empire was really a global empire. I mean, it was an empire upon which the sun never really set. So they had access to all sorts of goods uh, from all around the world. And it was at a single site in southwest Texas, um, actually in a place called Uvalde, 
Um, that's, that's right about the part of the world where Matthew McConaughey was born, of all things, uh, in a single site. We were excavating Native American remains, as well as like Spanish pottery, French pottery, uh, British, uh, British pottery and ceramics, and Chinese ceramics. So you're talking about just all this stuff from all different parts of the world uh, being excavated in one place. And then after that, I worked on a, on a research project. So no excavations were involved or anything, uh, but more of a research project where I helped edit uh, some research that was done into the origin of the Native Americans. So, you know, there, there's there's a I wouldn't say that the debate is as vigorous as it used to be. Obviously, it's pretty widely accepted um, among the scientific community that, you know, the Native Americans, you know, their their ancestry lies in, in Central Asia. Uh, mm -hmm. What is today Siberia, Mongolia? Uh, this can be verified, uh, you know, through through DNA, mitochondrial DNA analyses and stuff like that, uh, as well as just, uh, you know, general uh, archaeological records uh, going all the way through eastern Russia and into the Americas. It's it's, it's fairly common. Then you got a few quacks who like to, to go against the grain uh, with just these you know horribly substantiated um, alternate theories, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I helped uh, understand a little bit about. I helped edit some research that was designed to help the public understand a little bit more about about some of the archaeological findings uh, in northeast Russia around uh, what you call the the Yenisei and the Ob rivers. Uh, so just north of the of the Kamchatka Peninsula. Um, did that for a little bit. Then after after a pretty good stint in archaeology, uh, several years in it, I just decided that archaeology was a phenomenal passion, uh, but it just wasn't really it wasn't fulfilling every single uh, need that I had. Um, whether financially or uh, mentally or whatever else, right? So um, I decided I wanted to make a bigger difference in the world uh, than digging up uh, dead people uh, and their garbage. So I decided to go into politics and dig up garbage on my political enemies. <laughs> you might say in that sense, there's a little bit of overlap uh, between archaeology and politics, but not much else. Uh, you don't need enough. to use a toothbrush digging up political dirt on your enemies, though. It's a little easier, not quite as delicate, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, um, I, yeah, um, I would say this that's probably pretty accurate. But uh, yeah, um, just after archaeology, I decided I wanted to get into politics. Turns out a few years before that, uh, my political views had been completely turned upside down uh, by this guy named Ron Paul. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe you've heard of him, but um, <laughs> I was I was a young college Democrat whenever I was first getting involved in politics, uh, like as a college student. I don't know, like, you know, 2012, 2013, uh, probably began as sort of a, I, I, I was never extraordinarily progressive. I was never very far of a leftist or anything like that. Uh, whenever you're from Mississippi, it's a lot harder to be uh, any kind of a leftist or anything like that. Um, sure. I was probably like a center left, um, like socially conservative blue dog Democrat as a, as a young person. Um, you know, but uh, just uh, I started meeting more, started meeting more libertarians. Um, you know, I started meeting folks with, with libertarian ideas, even some anarchists became friends with them, started actually just meeting with them, debating the ideas uh, over a lunch or after class or whatever it was. And uh, I'll just say there wasn't really like one great eureka moment uh, whenever I said, oh, my gosh, I must be a libertarian. It, it wasn't really like that. You know, it was probably mm -hmm. very, very gradual. Um, and I just decided, you know, that you know that the values that I really had all along uh, were much more in sync with with, with libertarianism, right? So um, I, I that's whenever I came across the Giuliani moment. I was probably a sophomore, junior in college. Um, I came across uh, a lot of Ron Paul's other writings, uh, the Yale chapter, uh, Baylor University. They gave me one of those pocket constitutions, a copy of In the Fed by Ron Paul. 
Um, it was about that time I got into, into Tom Woods as well, started paying a lot of attention to him on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and just like I said, over time, just sort of you know, went from like center left, blue dog Democrat, I guess, uh, to, uh, to the libertarian, uh, you know, that you're talking to today. So that's kind of my journey to liberty. Um, it, it all began with Ron Paul. Yeah, so I found a lot of empirical influence from my work and my life that pushed me toward libertarianism. I know you said Ron Paul was kind of the origin of you thinking that way, but did any of the archaeological work influence your libertarianism at all? Even in hindsight, did any of that kind of make sense? Because for me, it did from what I do for work. Hmm. Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, yeah, there, there was something really interesting that, uh, I don't know that it necessarily helped me become a libertarian. I was probably a libertarian by the time I found, uh, this particular anthropologist work, but there was an anthropologist uh, from, from, um, I believe it was UCLA named Philippe Bourgeois and, uh, Dr. Bourgeois, um, he actually studied, uh, youth in East Harlem, uh, back in the, back in the early two thousands. And he wanted to understand why it was exactly, uh, that so many youth in East Harlem were were engaging in, in gang activity, right? You know, like why were they basically engaging in the kind of lifestyles uh, that they were? And um, without going into all of the arguments, you know, that Dr. Bourgeois was making, um, he started talking. He, he did discuss extensively the way that everyday people in East Harlem, uh, there in the streets, sort of viewed the police, right? And how they viewed the gangs and really just, you know, the police really were to these people in East Harlem, just like the biggest bad of all of the gangs. Right. Like like the police, they, they were the ultimate gang roaming the neighborhood. They had the authority to, you know, to, to levy taxes against these people, to stop and frisk these people at one point in history, uh, to do all sorts of other you know, to throw them in a cage, uh, to, to kill them if necessary, whatever else. Right. Um so it was that that was really interesting. I was uh, I was it was 2017 uh, by the time I found uh, his ethnography, which was really just the synopsis of his work uh, submitted to the academic community. Um, and, I, you know, I read that and I just felt like there is a I, I don't think Dr. Bourgeois is a libertarian. Maybe I'm wrong, but I didn't get the feeling that this guy was a libertarian. This was someone from the depths of academia. Um saying something awfully similar as a result of years of research into this group of people to something that I might've expected to hear from Murray Rothbard. Right. Uh, so, you know, that was, that was, that was very interesting to me. That was a, you might say a little bit of a Eureka moment there. Um, there's another uh, famous figure in, uh, in, in the field of anthropology named Marvin Harris, uh, Marvin Harris. If you talk to any self-respecting anthropologist, they'll be able to talk to you about Marvin Harris. Uh, they'll, they'll certainly recognize his name, um, if they're a good anthropologist, they'll be able to point to some of his work. And if they're a great anthropologist, they'll be able to explain to you uh, some of his work, uh, even if they have. And, but that, that's no guarantee that they're going to have a very positive opinion on it. Uh, but, but one of Marvin Harris's research foci was trying to understand exactly what happened to the manufacturing industry uh, in the United States of the 20th century and trying to understand the cultural and perhaps even sociological effects uh, that the loss of American manufacturing was having on, let's say, the family unit. What kind of effect that that was having on, what, what kind of effect that was having on basically just, you know, the, the societal fabric overall, right? Mm -hmm. um, Marvin Harris is generally considered to be a more conservative-leaning uh, anthropologist, I would say. I probably agree uh, with that assessment. Linus, if you 
things that I've read about him. But Marvin Harris speculated that such a thing existed as a culture of poverty, um, wherein this was a, he, he was essentially making observations about people living in Detroit, for example, about how there are certain communities or there are certain, maybe even individuals, maybe, maybe, maybe it does go down to the individual level, people who are actually scared of the idea of economic success. Um, because like moving up the economic ladder, uh, getting more money, taking on more responsibility, this is a very alien thing to them. Um, you know, this is something that's, that's kind of scary. Like if, if, if being surrounded by poverty, right, is, some, is the only thing that they've ever really known, if it's sort of generational to them, then not everyone is necessarily going to seek to climb the economic ladder uh, because of some of the consequences that happen as a result of that. So uh, I read that, uh, that was after I graduated. I, I found uh, Dr. Harris's work on the culture of poverty. And I, I thought that was, that was fascinating, right? To see an anthropologist who probably doesn't have as much sympathy uh, to the left, you know, to, to Marxism as most other anthropologists you'll find. And he's saying, look, not, you know, there's a strong case to be made based on this evidence that maybe not everybody necessarily aspires to climb the economic ladder. Maybe there are some people who are more comfortable with uh, with a state of poverty or maybe just being in the middle class or below the middle class or whatever else, right? So that was pretty interesting. Um, as far as your question, Reed, I would say Dr. Bourgeois and Dr. Harris, uh, those were two cases where uh, that I can immediately think of where, you know, things that I was reading in anthropology um, and trying to internalize, it, it, it did, you know, sort of uh, serve in a complementary fashion towards my politics. Yeah, so I know we want to talk about Young Americans for Liberty and some of the recent developments there, but you got heavily involved with Young Americans for Liberty after uh, seeing the light on libertarianism. So, what was that like? What did you what did you get um, What did you get involved with as far as what type of position you had, and then what were the transformations you started to see happening over time? Uh, sure. So. Um... You know, I, I, I got more involved in Young Americans for Liberty, um, you know, like I said, as an undergraduate student with my Yale chapter at Baylor, just because um, I was really frustrated with what I saw happening in academia. So when um, when I was an anthropology student, uh, my my ambition was to become was to go into academia was, uh, you know, I wanted to, to go to graduate school or earn my Ph.D. from from a, a respectable school, um, you know, become a you know, fight, become a professor so on and so forth. But the more graduate programs that I studied uh, that I sort of reviewed and considered applying to, I was finding that, you know, there's, you know, five to seven years worth of Marxist indoctrination uh, that you're forced to go through uh, before you can have doctor next to your name and before you can even stand a chance um, at, uh, at the sort of job that I wanted. So a, a big part of the reason why, um, and this is probably unlike most other libertarians, but a big part of the reason why I got involved in Young Americans for Liberty specifically was because I wanted to help fight this problem in academia. You know, what I saw was a, a mass Marxist infiltration of academia specifically, because mm -hmm. when it comes to the dangerous and destructive ideas uh, that are just plaguing our society today, they begin in academia. It's from academia. They trickle down from academia into the K through 12 schools, uh, into, into policy, into the media, into every other institution across society that's been taken over one after another, you know, the, you know, the, the, the horrible leftist Marxist theories, they are cultivated um, inside of the halls of academia. And so 
Young Americans for Liberty, uh, just given the fact that it had so many campus chapters and so much of its work was committed to fighting on college campuses specifically, uh, that's why I decided to get involved with them. It was because I wanted to help fight something that was ruining um, an industry that I had once wanted to go into. Um, so I started off, uh, I guess you could put it at the bottom of Young Americans for Liberty, really at the bottom of the hierarchy, if there is a bottom, so to speak. Um, as a as a as a door to door grassroots canvasser, uh, I joined a program called Operation Win at the Door, uh, which is just kind of where you start if, if if really you want to make any money and you're, and you're no longer a college student. Uh, just going from campaign to campaign, uh, state to state, you know, knocking doors for for candidates who uh, who are supposed to embody the ideas of liberty, right? Uh, so, I mean, I think most people probably understand the general gist of Operation One at the Door. Maybe they've heard of it over the last few years. The program's been around for about four years now. But uh, the idea is that, um, you know, Young Americans for Liberty, they want to have influence in the state legislatures and they want to to craft and sponsor model pro-liberty legislation. So they endorse candidates who support the ideas of liberty, basically, you know, many Ron Pauls, you know, uh, who are running for state legislature, Um they endorse them and they send people uh, like I was back in 2018 uh, to go knock doors for those candidates uh, in those targeted, you know, state legislative districts. Um, I'll tell you, that was one of the best chapters of my life. Um, 2018 on the campaign trail, I got to knock doors for some really great candidates, uh, you know, in and around Young Americans, you know, the Young Americans for Liberty Sphere um, in Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, South Carolina, Missouri, Nebraska, Florida, you know, handful of other states I got to be involved in as well. Um, I would say, you know, back then, the program was fundamentally different than what's happened today. And that's something that we can get into a little bit later. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I got involved. I began, like I said, just kind of at the bottom as a door knocker. Um, like I said, if there is a bottom of the Young Americans for Liberty hierarchy. Um, and then over time, uh, after, after seven campaigns in late 2018, I was invited uh, to work in a full-time capacity at the Young Americans for Liberty National Headquarters um, in a communications capacity. Uh, so at that time, there were only uh, two communications staffers at Yale. There was the director of comms and the digital media director. Um, about the time that I was invited to come on board, uh, the the director of comms uh, went to go work for another company. So communications was really just two staffers. Um, there was no real idea uh, at, you know, at that time, we're talking about late 2018, of really taking communications and weaponizing, you know, the, uh, the potential of public relations and marketing and advertising and comms and all of that, you know, as a, as a main, you know, driving engine uh, for the company's growth, right? There was no such idea that had ever been introduced to the company. So I was invited to go work in an entry-level uh, communications capacity, and uh, I, I took them up on that. Um, uh, so I began working uh, in comms in late 2018. Um, from there, I actually I pitched the idea of a distinct communications department. You know, so so Young Americans for Liberty had a, a development department, or that's fundraising. They had a grassroots department and a campus department. But I mean, I didn't just build the communications department at Yale um, over many years, I actually presented the idea to the company leadership at the time and said, here is what communications can provide this company, what branding can, can provide this company if we start taking these concepts seriously and we start bringing uh, key people on board. So from 2018 until earlier this year, um, I, I got two more promotions 
um, at Young Americans for Liberty, uh, first to Director of Public Relations and then to Vice President of Communications at Yale. I was Yale's first ever Vice President of Communications. Um, throughout that time, I very slowly assembled the pieces for what would become Young Americans for Liberty's communications and marketing apparatus. So everything that people see today uh, at Young Americans for Liberty, as far as social media, as far as marketing, um, all the social media platforms, as well as how the company engages earned media like TV, radio, podcasts, op-eds, press releases, all of that, all of that was under my purview. And all of, all of that is a result of systems that I introduced to the company uh, over a very long three and a half, almost four years, uh, really. Um, so what people see today as far as social media, you know, t digital ads, TV, radio, podcast, all of that is at the very least a remnant of what, uh, of what I built up um, with some other great people uh, who I had brought on board over a period of three and a half, uh, four years. So what has changed recently? What started happening within the, within the um, organization that you noticed and were not a fan of? Well, uh, as far as what I'm not a fan of, uh, I could probably, you know, stay here for days with you and talk, read. Uh, but um, so in, in my capacity as vice president of communications, I mean, I was obviously overseeing all of the external content that was going out. I was overseeing the visual branding, uh, pretty much everything but the website. The, the website had stayed under another uh, executive's uh, purview, and that was fine, uh, in my opinion. Um, but um <sighs> I, I was basically responsible for being a guardian of the brand, right? Making sure that the organization had stayed on track towards the Ron Paul revolution, right? That was really sort of uh, an unspoken, uh, you know, responsibility of mine. What well, was making sure that that the original values of the organization uh, were represented, that the organization wasn't being carried too far into some other ideology. Uh, you know, that, uh, that, that, that maybe somebody else in leadership wanted to carry it into. Um, so that was where things began to get interesting with a leadership change that happened last year. Uh, so January of 2021, uh, we had a CEO uh, who was let go uh, because of some allegations, uh, you know, against him uh, involving some, some, some employees uh, at the company. Um, a few months later, uh, to replace him, Yao hired a lady named Lauren Doherty uh, to come in and fill his place uh, as CEO. Uh, this Things began to get problematic uh, because the moment that Lauren Doherty was brought in, I believe technically it was March 2021, um, the moment that, that, that Yao hired her to serve as CEO, it, it was abundantly clear that she had every intention of taking the organization's brand from the Ron Paul revolution into some hideous admixture of wokeism and neoconservatism. That is to say something like the direction of the Libertarian Party under the leadership of Nick Sarwark or the influence of a Bill Well type of person. Mm -hmm. um, so th this was immediately clear. Um, so my last 10, so over the next 10 months, I was basically just having to try and protect the Young Americans for Liberty brand from, from Ms. Doherty's constant incursions, her constant attempts to take it and turn it into this hideous new direction. Um, though those 10 months of creative differences culminated in the events of early February of 2022, uh, whenever uh, the board of directors contacted me and told me 
that they would uh, that they had chosen to terminate me over nothing more than my creative differences with Miss Doherty. Um, they offered me a substantial financial settlement uh, to keep to basically sign an NDA, waive all of my complaints against Miss Doherty and the rest of the organization's leadership. And just based on principle, I guess I'm, I, I turned it down. I said, you know, there's no way I'm going to sign. There's not, I mean, my soul is not for sale. You, you mm-hmm. can kiss my ass if you think that you're going to turn students for Ron Paul into students for Joe Bishop Hinchman. And I'm not going to say a damn thing about it, uh, especially as I have put years and other great people have put years of their lives into this organization. Uh, and some, uh, you know, so some middle-aged, uh, you know, woke lady from the suburbs wants to come in and try and change it into something else. So um, I, I, I turned down the financial settlement and I began sharing with, uh, with the help of some other great people uh, who were, and I kind of noticed what had been happening to y'all over the last several months. I began sharing with the outside world, uh, you know, what, uh, what kinds of things Lauren Doherty had asked my team to do what kinds of things that she had prevented my team uh, from doing over the previous 10 months. And it didn't constitute a very uh, pretty picture. Um, so yeah, just uh, yeah, to, to start summarizing, maybe just kind of an overview here. Uh, the first bit was uh, actually, this was a couple of weeks before she took of CEO. All of the Yale staff had a, had like a meet and greet with Lauren Um you know, just to try to get to know her, whatever else, right? And one staffer asked her in front of all the Yale staff there at the Yale HQ in Austin, Texas, what are your thoughts on the Federal Reserve? Now, any self-respecting soon-to-be CEO of Students for Ron Paul should know what the answer to that question is. Uh, and it was in that meeting. We just that need Lauren, to slightly reform it, right? It's just yeah, like yeah. We, we, just need, we need to slightly reform. <laughs> we, we need we need to uh, to, to engage in tapering. Uh, yeah. Tapering per the Jerome Powell model is all that's really needed from the libertarian perspective. <laughs> no, uh, instead of that, she said that she didn't really believe in, in ending the Fed, that she hadn't done her research on the matter. Um, uh, like that was a huge red flag. That was a couple of <laughs> weeks before she took the, the position of CEO. But unfortunately, that's not where it ended. Fast forward um, to April, I think April 20th, uh, 2021. Um, God, I don't know how I remember dates like that. That's crazy. I remember dates like that, but I can't remember like very pertinent, important information. But it's late <laughs> April uh, 2021. Um, so well, you're an archaeologist, so the dates are important, right? Like that's kind of wired yeah. into your yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's that's probably what it is. Uh, but uh, this was uh, yeah. So this was several days at this point, you know, before um, Lauren had actually taken the position of CEO. Uh, the Yale development team. Uh, had coordinated with the Babylon Bee to get a sponsored article published. Uh, you know, just you know, mentioning some of uh, some of a you know the activism work of one of our activists at a very left-leaning college in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that the that the text in this Babylon Bee article was written, it really seemed to read like uh, some sort of like, like an endorsement of Yale. Right? This was huge. Like the Young Americans for Liberty staff were excited to see the Babylon Bee actually mentioning one of our activists in upstate New York by name to actually see, uh, you know, like praise for our work uh, because like the article concluded with, uh, with a note is like to, to give to an organization committed to fighting camp, you know, cancel culture on college campuses, donate to young Americans for Liberty. And there was a link to our donation page. So this looked uh-huh. huge. Right. Uh, but uh, this upset Lauren uh, very, very much. So she, she, she contacted me 
said that uh, she felt like it was th that this article from the Babylon Bee endorsing Yao was tone deaf because it made us look like, quote, a bunch of privileged white kids. Um, mm. And I thought, oh, my God, this is what we have in store for us. I, I knew things were going to be bad uh, with Lauren mm -hmm. Doherty as soon as I see that she was interested in operating some sort of reality where we have to tiptoe around people thinking that we're a bunch of privileged white people. Uh, she then called uh, the chief of staff uh, after she sent me that strongly worded email, conveyed the same sentiment to him. Uh, I think she kind of chewed him out was, was, was really what I was gathering from all of that. So that was uh, crazy, uh, but it, it, it obviously didn't end there. That was right out a month later. Um, my, so the social media team under, under my management posted the first of many tweets attacking Liz Cheney. Uh, this was early May. First and many tweets attacking Liz Cheney. Okay, Yao was founded in opposition to the Bushes and the Cheneys. So right. attacking Liz Cheney, that should be a no-brainer, right? Uh, but uh, Lauren Doherty apparently had a problem with that, uh, with, with our attack on Twitter against Liz Cheney, uh, and pinged me with a series of texts reading, uh, and I quote, and I've got this one right here, my brain isn't at its best this week, but isn't what Liz Cheney is doing right now more aligned with our interests than other times? I don't see how criticizing her right now on her opposition to Trumpism is in your best interest. I frankly commend her for her courage on this one. So there you have it. That was the CEO of Young Americans for Liberty um, praising Liz Cheney for being brave. And pra you know, praising I, Liz Cheney for being brave for no other reason than the fact that she was against Trump. Yeah, I remember the Libertarian Party LP National account making a similar tweet around that time. Uh, so I, I wonder, like, how coordinated this was if they were, you know, trying to have the same message at the same time. But, yeah, man, Liz Cheney, geez, like, if there's ever an easy target <laughs> for someone yeah. you're never supposed to praise. But, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it was uh, it, it was absolutely just staggering to me. It, it upset my team, uh, my staff quite a bit. Uh, but uh, weirdly enough, we every every time there was some stupid directive or some stupid creative injunction passed down from Lauren, uh, to my team about something that we weren't doing right. And it was always stupid. She, she, to, and I, I hate, I hate to just sound bitter, but she quite literally had nothing of value ever even once to contribute to my team's yeah. operations. Not even once. I, I wish that I could say maybe Lauren had this right and maybe Lauren had that right, but I'm, I'm sorry, Reed, she just didn't. A person who doesn't have enough of a bearing on the philosophy of liberty to understand why you got to end the Fed and why Liz Cheney is never worth praising um, is, is, is not a person who can possibly contribute any constructive feedback or, or direct or direction at all. Um, yeah. it, it didn't end there though. Um, so it was like a month later, right at a month later, um, my social media team posted a picture of Kamala Harris laughing into a microphone with a caption reading something like, uh, find someone who laughs at your jokes the way Kamala Harris laughs at a question she doesn't know the answer to. Right. I thought that was a pretty benign thing. It's kind of funny. But yeah. uh, Lauren got angry, sent me a series of text messages uh, ordering me to take it down. She said, it looks really bad if we're calling the first, uh, you know, female VP of color sexist or, or, or stupid, which is how many people are going to see this. Right. And like so my team fought her on this, but she refused to budge. And so that that was just insane to me. Like, yeah. well, so Kamala Harris it can't be attacked by young Americans for liberty now because Kamala Harris is the first vice president who is a woman of color. 
This that is sounds kind of sexist and racist to me, actually, if you're not allowed yeah. to criticize someone because they're a woman and they're of color. Isn't that um, implying that they're not able to stand up for themselves? <laughs> or something? I don't know. But well, it's it's always the, these these suburban pasty you know white liberals like like Lauren yeah. Doherty who are the most uh, who are the most you know re, available you know, for outrage. About yeah. This. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, so that was just crazy, but uh, unfortunately, it, it didn't get any better. Um, in fact, uh, the longer that Lauren Doherty uh, stayed uh, after taking uh, the position of CEO there in the spring of 2021, the more uh, the more intense uh, a lot of these injunctions got. So uh, it was early December. Uh, you and your audience might remember the the, the really epic Christmas card uh, that Thomas Massey put out last year. It's him oh, and his yeah. family. They're posing with their weapons in front of their Christmas tree or something like yeah. that, right? Um, so the Yale staff thought this was awesome. They loved that Thomas Massey and his family, they got their M16s, their AR-15s, everything else, right? They're posing in front of their, their Christmas tree. And it's, this is a very good, strong, unapologetic way of promoting the Second Amendment. There, there, there's nothing to be ashamed of here, right? We should be doing more of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, while, while the Yale staff thought this was awesome and they were sharing it and stuff like that, Lauren Doherty, uh, in all of her uh, profound and boundless wisdom, uh, sent an all-staff email uh, condemning that card, reminding us that many people find guns very scary. Um, so this, this sent a ripple throughout, you know, the entirety of the YAL staff. Um, this made a, a lot of people rightfully upset. Um, the following day, um, I, I got on the phone with, with Lauren Doherty and I told her, look, Lauren, a, a lot of staffers are coming to me. Like what the hell's going on? Are we going to become a, an, an anti-gun organelle? And I said, yeah. I'm letting you know this because you're actually upsetting quite a bit of staff and you're giving staffers, you know, this impression and that impression. And uh, she said to me over the phone that day, uh, I think this was, uh, Jesus, I think this was like Tuesday, December 7th. I think I just, I think I remember that date just because it was December 7th, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, she said uh, to me, if there's anybody in this office who still questions my libertarian credentials, I need to know who they are and they need to find another line of employment. I pulled the phone away from my face, like, oh my God, like this is what this is what Yao has on its hands. You know, yeah. somebody who's going to say just absolutely stupid, outrageous things that directly contradict the company's values and then blame the people themselves for getting upset. Like this is a this is the worst kind of leader, in my opinion. Yeah. Is a leader who's absolutely pathetic uh, at leading on every single level and then has the audacity to blame the people who they're supposed to be inspiring for not being inspired by their lack of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what we had on our hands. Um, this was, uh, yeah, but it, it, the whole month of December was just a nightmare dealing with this lady. It was a couple of days after that. Um, my team put up a, we put up a, a, a like a meme. Um, it was a, an, an image of a bunch of kids. It looked like they were in preschool. They were all wearing masks. And the caption at the top said, the desire to mask children is evil. Well, uh, you know, to no one's surprise, this upset Lauren Doherty. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she contacted me and said uh, that we needed to take that down because the desire to mask children is not evil. I have a screenshot with a text message of Lauren Doherty that Lauren Doherty sent me saying the desire to mask children is not evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She even likened it to, to the Nazis by saying the Nazis were evil. Masking children is not evil. So that was just 
insane. So she made my team take it down to no surprise. Um, I got on the phone with her and I said, I, I tried to push back with her. Um, I said, look, Lauren, this is this, my team is going to start asking questions. If we have to take down this post, right. You got to understand mm-hmm. that. Um, and uh, she said, uh, read, she said to me, I, I, I kid you not. She said to me over the phone, read, I mask my children. Does that make me evil? <laughs> Once again, I just pulled the phone from my face and just looked at it like, oh my God, like what kind of person am I talking to? Like mm-hmm. a person who who brags about masking their kids and then tries to take, you know, that and inject that into, into the brand of a company, a brand which has existed for over a decade uh, before they had ever, you know, come there. So uh, that was just crazy. Like you, this lady's bragging to me. I wish I wish I had that in writing, but I, I don't. She said it to me over the phone. Uh, but she said, uh, you know, I'm asking my children, Reed, does that make me evil? And like, I was this close to telling her yes. And then yeah, it was like well, putting in also, my resignation. Yeah. This is December of 2021, not March of 2020. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. we know that this doesn't do anything. And we know this is just ridiculous at this point. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, dude, it was just, it was insane. Like I, I was waiting on Rod Serling to pop out of a door or wall somewhere <laughs> and to look into some unseen audience and somewhere and say, Reed doesn't realize this. He just stepped into the twilight zone. You know, like I was yeah. just, I didn't think that I was in reality. Um, yeah. Like I said, the whole month of December was an absolute disaster uh, dealing with Lauren. Um, it was a Christmas Eve. You know, she, she got angry with something else that we posted. Uh, we called Joe Biden a liar. On Christmas Eve, my yeah, so my my social media team they put up a meme of Joe Biden calling, uh, you know, it was no, it had Joe Biden like on a grill, and the the meme said, uh, "You got an elf on a shelf, we've got a liar on a fryer." Okay, mm-hmm. we thought that was kind of cute, whatever else, right? Uh, but uh, Lauren Doherty contacted me, uh, made made my team take it down because in her words, gal didn't need to be calling politicians liars. I'm like, okay. Like if, if you can't call politicians liars and you're a libertarian student yeah. org, <laughs> uh, like what, what, what can you do? Like yeah. that, that's it, like it, that, that, that goes beyond fundamental. That is pre fundamental, right? I, I don't understand how to, how to properly explain that if you can't call a politician a liar, if you can't point out when they're being dishonest, you can't you can't do anything else substantive in the world of politics in any sort of way. You just yeah, can't. Right. So that was crazy. Um, and then there was this this instance that happened. This was the day after Christmas. Um, my team posted a, a, like an old patriotic picture uh, of three revolutionary soldiers uh, marching with musical instruments in their hands. Uh, and the caption read. Uh, I remember correctly, it was like the way things are looking, we might have to get the band back together, right? This is like good hardcore, like 1776 fuck yeah content, right? Mm-hmm. And uh lo and behold, Lauren Doherty contacts me and says that we have to take that picture down because it might incite political violence. That an image of the American Revolution, of revolutionary <laughs> soldiers marching against redcoats because they're fighting tyranny might incite political violence. That is the kind of just groundbreaking idiocy that young Americans for Liberty still has in charge. And that the board of misdirectors, I mean, board of directors at Yale actually put into the position of CEO, someone who thinks that Liz Cheney is worth praising. 
that Kamala Harris should be off limits, that we shouldn't celebrate guns uh, because guns are scary, uh, be, that, that masking children isn't evil, that it's too risky to call politicians liars, uh, and that the American imagery of the American Revolution is akin to inciting political violence. That's what's in charge of students for Ron Paul. Is she a fan of Nina Yankovic's new, uh, new position, the you know the the board of disinformation? Do you think she's probably a fan of all this at this point? Or uh, if I can just if I can speculate on a purely opinion <laughs> yeah. basis, I would say she probably is. I would yeah. say I would say I would not be surprised if she were. I don't know that obviously, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily. Uh, be surprised. And, you know, I, I feel confident enough, you know, saying something like that, because on top of everything that I just, you know, shared with you and your audience, it was pretty obvious to a lot of the YAL staff who were paying attention to what, you know, Lauren Doherty was putting on social media, that she clearly had some sympathies towards the Liz Cheney, Lindsey Graham, Mitt Romney, you know, Bill Weld, Bill Crystal. Uh, you know, uh, sect, uh, we might say. Um, it, so it's like, I'll never forget. This was, uh, I forget which month this was, um, but this was in the summer of, of 2021. Um, there were some staffers who had approached me and said that, you know, they were, they were kind of worried about the stuff that, that, that Lauren was sharing because Lauren was retweeting AOC. I, I kid you not. She was retweeting AOC but she wasn't retweeting like Thomas Massey and, and like obvious champions within our yeah. movement. So I got on the phone with her and I said, Hey, Lauren, you got a couple staffers who are a little bit worried, you know, about the fact that you've, you've retweeted AOC. They've already seen it. Why don't we, why don't we fix that by having you retweet Ron Paul? Maybe because you are CEO of students for Ron Paul. If you were to retweet Ron Paul every day or every other day, that would help your, public image, which is pretty much a carte blanche at that point. It was. Nobody really knew who Lauren Doherty was. She had been obscure until mm -hmm. she came to Yale. Maybe that would give more people the impression that she was, you know, as ideologically aligned as she should be. And she mm -hmm. said to me over the phone, she said, oh, I would retweet Ron Paul's Twitter page, but all he does is post the Ron Paul Liberty Report, and it's just oh so boring. And I thought, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> uh, Oh my gosh. So she, she'll go out of her way to justify retweeting somebody like AOC, right? Mm -hmm. Or one of the writers at the Bulwark, for example, which she was uh, known to do. Or she would retweet Mitt Romney's statement on the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, or something like that. But she wouldn't, she wouldn't retweet the Ron Paul Liberty Report. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's why I say uh, whenever you talk about potential sympathy to some element of the deep state or some new regulatory agency. Uh, I don't know that very much would surprise me, Reed. Like I said, that's purely my opinion, but that's just, that's where I stand based on all the observations, uh, you know, that I, that, that I have and all of the, the, the nonsense that I put up with for as long as I did. Yeah. I mean, this is the, this is the real danger of the woke stuff. You know, it's annoying the woke stuff, but what's a lot scarier than the annoying you know, ridiculousness of it is what it usually ends up being a mask for, because when it's a mask for Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, uh, Bill Crystal, you know, I, I've seen this. It's a trap, not just for libertarians, for for progressives who are supposed to be good on a couple things like war and civil liberties or whatever. Like I saw Marianne Williamson 
agreeing with Bill Crystal about pulling out of Afghanistan because we needed to stay there to protect women's rights. Like this is what they use it for. And, yep. you know, people just fall into that trap and they don't realize that that's what's really going on. Like you're still supporting George W. Bush. It might not be the, you know, the PNAC approach or the, you know, the uh, conservative evangelical Christian approach, but it's the same thing. They're doing the same policies. They're just using a new veneer to disguise it. And that's what's really so dangerous yep. about that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Maybe something I should have gotten to much earlier in the show is the fact that uh, it was just a, a few hours after you know, the board of directors had terminated me for having the audacity to call Lauren Doherty out. They hired a guy named Brendan Steinhauser uh, to come in, serve as the newest addition of the executive team. Um, I had never met this person before. He didn't work um, with young Americans for Liberty previously, but he did serve as, as Dan Crenshaw's campaign manager. Uh, this was also a person who was against the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, back in August. You can see that on his Twitter page. I think his handle is like at bstein80. Um, as early as December of last year, he was putting out tweets in favor of military action against Russia over the, over the Ukraine crisis. Um, and it was, uh, it was just last week that he was getting attacked by, by our great friend Pete Quinones, right? Um, on Twitter, because he this this guy, the, the new chief strategy officer at Young Americans for Liberty, who Lauren Doherty, I guess, hired to replace me, actually put out a tweet hinting at the idea that Tucker Carlson is a Russian agent. So, yeah, I, I kid you not. That's the newest addition to Yao's executive team. The person who, to my understanding, is now in charge of the communications department that I and a lot of other great Ron Paulers uh, actually built. So you're right. I mean, I think that the reason, you know, one of the major reasons why I turned down Yell's money in the first place was because what's happened to Yell contains so many different profound lessons that we need to carry with us to the rest of the movement. And what you just said a minute ago about how wokeism is typically just a mask to conceal a lot of other hideous form, like a lot of other hideous policies, like like neoconservatism, like what is being introduced to Yao. Um, you know, um, uh, what's happening to Yao is just a perfect reflection of all this. I mean, like you, you you can't really ask for a much better case study, a much better example uh, than than what's unfortunately happening to that organization. So. Um, on that note, I mean, whenever it comes to the lessons that need to be learned here, maybe the most profound is that um, no matter how well-intended an organization is, no matter what kind of people you have uh, who have helped build it whenever it's built, um, you know, and, and organizations are going to go astray. I mean, mm -hmm. Young Americans for Liberty was originally founded as students for Ron Paul. And so many of the people who were involved in the 2008 and 2012 Ron Paul campaigns, or if they weren't directly involved with the founding of Young Americans for Liberty, they weren't very far. They were tangential to it. Mm -hmm. And now Young Americans for Liberty has completely lost its way. Um, it, it has a, a horrible board of directors uh, that, that don't share any of the sympathies. Uh, even Jeff Frazee, uh, the founder of the company, uh, who is, you know, who has been, who has been widely celebrated for being uh, one of the OG Ron Paulers, He's completely, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can tell, just seems to be completely and totally apathetic to what's going on there. Um, completely checked out of, of libertarian politics. And, you know, the, the Ron Paul 
the Ron Paul revolution inside that organization is dead, right? And it could not have been founded with better intentions uh, way yeah. back in 2008. So, you know, institutions, organizations, political parties, these are just temporary vehicles, you know, through which we keep the movement itself going. Yeah. You know, they, they, they're not synonymous with, with, with the movement or the philosophy itself. They're just very temporary vehicles whereby we do that. I think that's one thing we have to understand is that, you know, the fight for liberty is much more eternal and much more far reaching than any one organization. So yeah. uh, like a couple of folks, I mean, I'm not joking. A couple of folks contacted me uh, right after things blew up and, you know, their, their concerns were, Hey, is this libertarianism dead? Uh, <laughs> is, 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 is the Liberty movement dead? Uh, is, is the Ron Paul revolution gone? They, they would have their own version of asking that question essentially uh, to which I said, hell no, it's not dead. You know, we have to keep fighting here. Uh, yeah. Like you know, now, we should be galvanized and energized and ready to 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 grind our teeth together and do whatever do do whatever fighting is necessary. Because if we throw in the towel and we say if, you know, that libertarianism is dead, then the the people who took over Young Americans for Liberty who want to see libertarianism carried away from the message of Ron Paul. They're they're going to win. They consider that to be a victory for themselves. Mm-hmm. So just you know, the fight for liberty, the libertarian movement, it's much greater and much much more far-reaching than 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 one single organization, one single institution. And I think that that'll be a general rule of thumb for all time. Yeah. So, just be explicit. What do you think about Young Americans for Liberty? And should people still give money to it, or? Um, you know, should they just let it die? Do you think there's no way that it can be reformed at this point? What are your thoughts there? I don't think that the problems at Young Americans for Liberty are a problem that that they can fire their way out of. Um, as I alluded to a minute ago, um, the issues happening there, that they're not exclusive to Lauren Doherty. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, Lauren Doherty has not been fired because she is doing exactly what the board of directors wants her to do. Mm-hmm. She is a reflection of what the board of directors, really the, the highest up and least accountable institution in, in, in any organization, um, you know, she's doing exactly what they want. Um, it's, it's virtually impossible to get rid of, of one director, uh, much less an entire board, uh, plus your CEO, uh, plus, as badly as I hate to say it, the majority of the executive team, you know, the vice presidents um, you know, at, at the company. Um, I, I don't see, I see young Americans for Liberty staying around uh, as an organization, uh, for a long time, uh, in all likelihood, uh, but I don't see it being anything close to a reflection of what it was intended to be. Um, and, and any, any attempts that we have seen over the last few months or that we will continue to see, uh, to, to celebrate the Ron Paul revolution, I think they should be treated with extreme skepticism and in all likelihood, as nothing more than the organization trying to save face for having betrayed Dr. Paul uh, and everything that he stood for. Um, so this isn't a problem they can fire the way out of. The board of directors is completely, in my opinion, corrupt. They've, they've lost message. They're, they're out of touch. These, you know, the, the board of directors is occupied by enemies of the Ron Paul revolution. The, the CEO, my God, we've spent the last 30 minutes talking about the CEO uh, and, and, but the rest of the executive team, they, uh, they, they don't, you know, the, the, the entire, all three tiers of leadership, 
um, are, are just completely far gone. They're completely far gone. Um, I don't see that as a situation that an organization can survive. Um, there's so much influence inside the organization that is not of a Ron Paul nature that I think that, you know, if, if, if there is any Ron Paul influence left in that org, it will not be the true Northern star that it was intended to be. It will be nothing but a faction inside of the organization. It will be one of several choices as far as what philosophy the organization can adopt. And, and that is appalling. Anything less than the Ron Paul revolution inside that organization is completely and totally appalling. And in, in my opinion, if, and I'm afraid this has happened, uh, but if, you know, if the organization is treating the Ron Paul revolution as, as sort of an inconvenient faction that, that it only wants to pay lip service to whenever it's time for some new fundraising gimmick or it's time to save face for a PR crisis, then that's an organization that doesn't need to be around um, if, if, if it's nothing more than, than a gimmick to them, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I just don't see it being a, a situation that is where we, where we can get the outcome that we want. And even if you could replace the entire board of directors, get rid of the bad people on the executive team, spend the legwork that it takes to get, you know, the rest of the anti Ron Paul influence out, you then have to undergo the fatigues of keeping it out, which is, Impossible, and I think that that amount of time is better invested in some other kind of organization or some other kind of movement or carrying the Ron Paul revolution. You're carrying that torch uh, somewhere else. Uh, I mean, I I really hate to have to share that with the Liberty Movement. It has not been pleasant going on show after show after show over the last two months now, telling people that that, that Young Americans for Liberty is dead. Um, mm -hmm. That that has not been pleasant. I did not wish for that at all, but. Um, I, I don't I don't have a, a very optimistic outlook there. And um, I'm also hearing almost every day, even now, uh, May, you know, months after everything blew up, I'm still hearing every single day from people. If they're not inside the org, then they're outside of it. Uh, they're close to it and they understand what's happening on the inside. They're telling me all these different things about how the programs are failing. Yeah. About how about how the door knocking program is is becoming dysfunctional, that they're not getting personnel, that they're not getting this, that they're not getting that. I'm hearing this stuff every single day. Um, yeah, so I, I just don't see, I, I don't see you know a very positive outlook for that organization. But um, I choose not to get upset, you know, by that because I do think that if we roll up our sleeves and we all do our jobs elsewhere. Uh, then, then you know, the Ron Paul Revolution's best days can still be ahead. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing all this with us, man. Um, and yeah, I think it's like you said, it's about learning lessons going forward. So, uh, where can people keep up with you? And what is next for Reed Cooley now that Young Americans for Liberty is gone? Are you are you trying to start anything new, or are you just waiting to see what? comes on the horizon what's uh yeah where can we follow you and what's coming next uh sure so the best place to find me is just on on twitter i'm not uh, incredibly active on very many other platforms at least not these days uh, my handle is at j reed cooley j r e e d c o l e y um as far as what's next for me reed um i've got my hands on a lot of different cookie jars as far as uh, you know keeping this movement uh, going um i'm extremely excited over some stuff that's going to be launching publicly 
uh, over the next couple of months. Uh, so I would just encourage your audiences to stay tuned uh, over that. Uh, you know, but uh, yeah, just you know, I'm, I'm working on I'm working on trying to advance the Ron Paul revolution in a much more decentralized way uh, that I'm accustomed to, and I have to say that's a pretty refreshing way of looking at it. Absolutely. Well, thanks, man, for joining the show. Maybe we'll get you back on again sometime. This whole read and read uh, chemistry that we got going here, you know, it, I don't think it, it it's really unparalleled because, you know, there, there is no <laughs> other read C and read C in the Liberty Movement. Um, and yeah, if anyone's new to the channel, please subscribe. I will be going live with Josh Smith on Tuesday night. And then the guys from the Biting the Bullet podcast will be on Thursday night. And then, as always, they'll be on Tower Gang on Wednesday night. So thanks for watching, guys.